So as Pastor Maudie said, if you would take good notes, every, time at the end, every, every week at the end of the message, we ask you, what is a takeaway? What is something you heard that you want to apply to your life this week? And so good notes and some questions, we'll give you some prompts, and then you'll kind of be able to turn around with your family or with friends around you and just be able to ask that question, what did we hear that stood out that we want to apply to our lives today? All right, Acts chapter 6 is where we're headed. If you turn there, I want to open with something that we've already talked about. If you need to borrow a Bible, there is one on the seats in front of you. And I can get you there quicker. It's page 914 in the borrowed Bibles, in the, in the, the chair Bibles. But I want to give you a key piece of information, something we've talked about, but it's really important today that we understand that. So the author of the book of Acts is a man named Luke. Luke also writes the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Luke. Luke's partnership both with Peter and Paul give him the apostolic authority to write these two things. Right? So he's writing Peter's account of the early history of the church. He then later joins Paul and writes Paul's account of the early history of the church. And from all the apostles whom he had known, he gathers and writes a very historic account of the gospel in the gospel of Luke. That gospel ends with these words, and we'll put them on the screen for you. In Luke chapter 24, it says, and this is about Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them, these two disciples he's walking with, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Right? Jesus said the law of the prophets, right? So the Old Testament, and even including the poetry, the Psalms, right? He says that he is the central theme of scripture. Jesus says, all of them proclaim me to come. They're about me. The point is, Jesus says, him. Right? That Jesus is the hero of the story from cover to cover. And that the Old Testament, what you and I would just look at as the first two-thirds of our Bible, they all proclaim Christ. And we get confused about that. Sometimes we get drawn off into the narratives or the story of Israel, their highs and lows, their rebellion, God rescuing them, God judging them, the story, right? And so as we see that, sometimes we get drawn into thinking about them more than thinking about Jesus. And Jesus teaches us that all of Scripture, specific to, in this case, all of the Old Testament, because they're living in the times that we'll write about and will become the New Testament, that all of Scripture is about him. So here's a main idea for you today. Even the religious fall away. So Stephen is the first witness. The Greek word is martyr, martus, which means witness, to die for his faith. He dies proclaiming Jesus to those who profess faith but have fallen into false worship and sin. Right? Even the religious fall away. We might say, especially the religious have a tendency to fall away. That's if we're defining religion as a subset of rules or practices rather than a depth of relationship with God. Right? And so here's what we're going to see. Stephen is the first martyr, the first one to die for his faith. He dies at the end of this passage today. So Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So it's Jerusalem. It's about 10 years after the ascension, maybe, maybe a little more or less, but about a decade into the church. Best we can see, there's at least 10,000 believers, or somewhere in that ballpark, of about 10,000 believers scattered throughout a gigantic city in Jerusalem. And these followers of Jesus are primarily Jewish, right? They're, they're Jews that live in Jerusalem for the most part. Some are converts, but for the most part, they're Jewish by race, ethnicity, and they're Jewish by faith, right? And so what we see here is an intro, we're being introduced to a new category of Jews. And we're seeing that there are Hellenists and Hebrews, or Hellenists and Hebraic Jews. Here's the distinction. They're both Jewish by ethnicity, and they're both Jewish by worship or by faith, but some are Hebrew-speaking, and some are Greek-speaking. What had happened, and during the history of Israel, if you remember back to our summer series, and we went through the Minor Prophets, and we see the, the nation of Israel split in two, become Judah and Israel, and then Israel's conquered, and, and, and exiled, and scattered, and dispersed, and then most of Judah is, and then a little bit later... Jerusalem, the final holdout in Judah, is scattered and taken into exile into Babylon. Well, a lot of these Jews that were scattered or dispersed, they're called the Diaspora, right? They were dispersed Jews. Some of them came back, like during Ezra and Nehemiah, when they came back to rebuild the temple, rebuild their homes, rebuild even the city of Jerusalem. Many of them didn't, right? Many of them stayed wherever they were and didn't come back. And during that time where they were gone, in whatever way they end up making themselves back into Jerusalem, the dispersed Jews that come back typically were Greek-speaking but didn't have that native tongue of Hebrew. And so they were considered Hellenist Jews versus the Hebraic Jews and were introduced to kind of the, the first problem inside the local church, inside the church in Jerusalem. And the struggle is not money to care for people, but that some people are being left out. And it's being left out on, a, on an ethnic basis, if you will. Right? Modern day version of that typically is skin color or, or language. Here, it's really two of the same ethnic group, except one is more Jewish than the other, they think, because they speak Hebrew. Right? That's really the big division. And so it's kind of a good problem in the sense that there's so many... And they're able to care for them financially. They're just, the distribution isn't working, right? And so the struggle is, how do we care for all our widows or all the marginalized within the church? So that's the setup for their issue today. Verse 2, or their issue in these verses. It says in verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and then Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So here's what happens, and many people see these as the first seven deacons. That is likely to be true. They're never called deacons, but they definitely have the role of that and the same qualifications that we see later in books like 1 Timothy and Titus. Okay, so we see this, this issue of widows, Greek-speaking, Hebrew-speaking, and one group's being left out and the other's not. 
they're able, they're financially capable of caring for all of them, but the distribution broke down around language and maybe some ethnic issues, right? And so what happens is basically like the elders of the church get together, they call the church together, it says a full number of the disciples gather, right? Remember, church means gathering, ecclesia means the gathering, right? So they call them together, and again, just some things if we want to recap 1 Corinthians, right? They know who belongs to the church and who doesn't. Right? They know who are members of the church and who are just visitors and outsiders. They know who belongs. And they, they gather the people that are, that are committed to one another, and they tell them the issue, and they tell them the solution. They said, listen, it's not right for us to stop praying for you guys and, and teaching and doing the things that we're called to to care for the widows. But the widows need to be cared for. It's not like it's a lower job. They're not saying that. It's just that we have a job and we have a need. And so let's raise up some men who can do this. Right? Let's, let's raise up some guys. And what's interesting is, he, they say, choose from among you. So the, the membership of the church, the body of the church, they choose the people, right? And they present them back to the elders of the church, the apostles that are leading in Jerusalem, right? And they install them. We'll just call them deacons for sake of argument, right? So that's what's going on. So there's a gathered body. There's a clear membership, there's an authority structure. There's a need. They want to serve this need. The church kind of puts these seven men forward, and the elders and apostles, they install them in this role, if you will. Right? Now, it's not just a job anybody can do, because it says they need to be full of spirit. They need to be wise. They need to have good reputation. They need to be solid, solid leaders. And so they come in, and they lay their hands on them, they're all Hellenist men. In other words, they're all Greek-speaking men. We know that by their names, right? And they're installed to take care of this issue. It's kind of like today, at the end, of, later on today, like we will gather our members, right? We'll gather those that are formally kind of committed to one another. And today's not a big problem day or anything, but that's the group that we kind of work through some things, help set vision for the year, you know, talk about the budget, approve the budget, do whatever, like the business of the church. And in, in a setting like this, that's what they're doing they're dealing with the needs of the business of the church, right? They're caring for people and choosing how to do that. And that's what we see them take care of right here. Verse 7, it says this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So through this, we see this continuing phrase over and over again, that God is using this little church that has grown into a, a pretty big church that is continuing to reach people with the gospel as they gather and figure out and solve, like, how do we better do this or solve for this? God continues to add to them, right? Bless them, grow them, if you will. So the Hellenist controversy here in these first seven verses really is not about getting us two deacons or two Stephen it's, a really, it's really a passage about identifying this conflict that comes into the church. That'll help us with what comes next. Verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. The synagogue of the freedmen are Hellenist Jews. They're Greek-speaking Jews. They can't go to the temple because at the temple they speak Hebrew. 
So they've got kind of their own gathering, like their own sub-Jewish church, if you will. And so they rise up. Now, again, Hellenists just rise up, and they're debating with a Hellenist leader. So a Greek-speaking Jewish leader who is following Jesus. That's not confusing at all, right? All right. And a group of people that are Jews, but Greek-speaking and not hanging out with the other Jews because they're kind of this separation, they start to, if you will, pick a fight. And so this issue is going to be what drives the church outside of Jerusalem. It's going to push them outside of Jerusalem. We'll see that next week. Acts 2 through 5, what we see is opposition from Hebrew-speaking Jewish leaders. Now in this chapter, we're going to see opposition from Greek-speaking Jewish leaders. It seems minor, but it becomes the thing that reshapes the church, if you will. Verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him, meaning Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. So they stir up also the Jewish religious leaders. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So they, they give some people to lie and give some false charges against this man, Stephen. Because really, talking with him and debating with him isn't working. It says he is just full of God's spirit, and God is with him. I mean, the description is here, full of grace and power, the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, right? It's, it's, nev- it's never about Stephen. In fact, today, though Stephen is going to speak through most of this, it's not about Stephen. It's about God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Stephen. That's important for us because it's never about us. Amen. It's about God, by his spirit, speaking through us to others. That's my prayer before the message. That's my prayer on the way to church. That's my prayer for you all. It's my prayer for me. That it's God that speaks. That it's not me. Right? Because I just get in the way. But God can do amazing things. And so that's what's going on. So it's Stephen, but it's not really Stephen. It's Stephen being used by the Spirit of God. Right? And so they instigate and bring false witnesses. Now, the charges are about violating God's law and temple law. I don't know if any of this sounds any familiar at all to you, but the charges against Stephen are the exact same charges they trumped up against Jesus. Right? Like, oh, he's going to violate the commandments of Moses and the temple. He's he's speaking out against this. Well, they say the same thing about Stephen. Now, just a side note. So they're going to violate the the law of Moses. Like, Stephen is speaking against the law of Moses. Now, if you boil down the law of Moses simply to the Ten Commandments, which it's much more than that, but if you just take the Ten Commandments, one of those is do not murder. Fair? One of those is do not bear false witness. Okay. You can see the hypocrisy from the beginning. So they're already bearing false witness the end of the chapter. Spoiler alert, right? They're going to kill Stephen. He's the first martyr of the Christian church. I think you saw that coming, right? So they're really violating the law to say he's violating the law, right? That, think on that one for a minute. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, talk about the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us, meaning the law. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So we've heard him say that Jesus is going to change things, right? Again, this is what they accuse Jesus of. It's this last line, no. When they looked at him, they saw like the face of an angel. And it's not really talking about his appearance. 
so much that he looks in a certain way. But it's really referring us back to something that we should know, and they for sure knew about Moses. When Moses would go into the presence of God and come back out and talk to the people, he glowed. Right? Sometimes he had to wear a veil over his face because he's glowing. He freaked the people out. And it's just this repeated thing reminding us that Stephen, like Moses, whom they say they trust, but don't, but Stephen, like Moses, has been in the presence of God and is speaking on behalf of God by the power of God. You with me? Acts chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? So simple enough question, is this true? Like a yes or a no would suffice here. Another option is 52 verses, right? That would be the pastoral option for sure, right? 52 verses preaches better than a yes or a no. Verse 2, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So Judaism begins with Abraham. God calls Abraham, who is not a follower of God, out of a land who doesn't have people who follow God. And he turns Abraham into a man who follows God. That's how this faith that has trickled down through the years and gotten to Jerusalem here, and ultimately lands here today too, right? But as we're in this story, it begins with Abraham. And God calls Abraham out of where he lives to go to a place that he hasn't even told him where yet, right? There's no law yet. Abraham is hundreds of years before Moses. There's clearly no temple. He's thousands of years before that, or at least a thousand years before that. And so God can seemingly work with someone apart from the law and apart from the temple. Fair? God calls Abraham and calls him to follow him. And and God begins this covenant relationship with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Verse 4. It says, Then he, meaning Abraham, went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land which you're now living Yet, verse 5, he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So remember, we started off today saying Acts has a ton of promise fulfillment, right? So there's going to be a lot of promise. We're right now with Abraham, we're in Genesis 12. We're like 10 pages in to the Old Testament. And God is making promises that he will fulfill over time. The amazing thing about Abraham is though he is the father of the faith, really the father of Judaism, the father of us here today because we come out of that tradition into Christianity by following Jesus, all of that, Abraham never gets a single thing that is promised to him. It is all about the generations that come after him. The one exception would be he gets a son because he has no sons. And that's the beginning of the offspring that will become innumerable. Verse 6. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. Quote, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Abraham and Isaac, excuse me, became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. 
So God promised Abraham that his descendants would be a countless people, a gigantic nation, right? And that they would be a people that God would use and bless and ultimately would give them the land that Abraham at that moment is standing on, but Abraham will never own that land, right? It's all a future promise. Notice the time frame too. In between this promise to you, Abraham, and your kids, there's going to be this 400-year slavery in Egypt. But after that, I'm going to give them the land that you're in, right? Imagine what kind of faith it takes to be Abraham. Like, here's the promise, but you're never going to see it. But for descendants, after, for, for generations to come, this is the plan. But Abraham, you're, you're phase one of a big, big plan, right? You're who I want to use to get us there. Let me show you the words in Genesis 12 that God says, and we'll put this up. The Lord said to Abram, again, Abram, before he's even called Abraham, right? So Abram, go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Then I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Can you leave that up there for just a minute? So there's two things that are told to Abraham. And and honestly, they are the the meta-narrative of the Old Testament and the sub-narrative, if you will, right? The big one comes in the final line. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is kind of this hidden, if you will, kind of promise about Jesus to come. The first promise comes in Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman will come and overcome Satan, sin, and death, right? That same seed or offspring will come through now, this man, Abraham's family. In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, this is what we'll call the unconditional covenant of the Old Testament. This is unconditional, meaning this. It's not premised on Abraham at all, because Abraham can't do this, okay? It's only something that God can do, so it's only one way. It's, it's, it's only dependent upon God. Now, there's a conditional promise in there, too, that he will protect him and give him an inheritance, and that's based on Abraham's obedience and faith, right? I'll use you. I'll have kids through you. You'll teach them. You'll give them the covenant, right? And, and I'll keep blessing them as long as they stay in right relationship with me. You there? And then the unconditional peace, and through this family, I'll bring you Jesus, right? I'll bring Jesus through this. Now, he didn't know the name Jesus, but you get the point. The symbol of the covenant is circumcision. And so it repeats that Abraham then has Isaac and circumcises him. Isaac then has Jacob. Jacob has the patriarchs. That's where we'll pick up verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt, over all his household. Well, that got corrupt and wicked pretty quick, right? Like you go from Abraham, who's being pretty faithful, and now a couple generations, and they're selling their own brother into slavery, right? It's not, it goes pretty quick. So the patriarchs are the 12 men by whom the tribes of Israel named after, Levi, Reuben, Judah, etc. Okay, Benjamin, But their brother Joseph is kind of their dad's favorite. They don't like it. Most of us know this story, right? And so they sell him off into slavery. But God uses that to then eventually rescue them. So he is rejected, sold into slavery, sent out, persecuted, etc. Ends up becoming their savior. Sound familiar a little bit? Verse 11. 
Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. Now I want you to just note a little bit as you're reading along, note the repetition of our fathers, okay? Our fathers could find no food. Verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So Joseph, sold into slavery, becomes their savior. Right? This, this typology or foreshadowing, it's not really, it's really typology. Like this, Joseph is a type that points forward to Christ, right? That Jesus would come and suffer and endure, but by doing so, he becomes savior. Joseph is sold into slavery, ends up rescuing his family. He is then exalted to above everyone other than Pharaoh, right? Jesus now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? That, that this, this story is, is, future, is telling what Jesus will come and do and be. Right? Remember, Jesus said all of Scripture, all the Old Testament points to him. Right? Verse 17. But the time, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants or put them out to death so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months at his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptian. He was mighty in his words and deeds." So this 400 years of waiting for the promise to be fulfilled that was given to Abraham, probably closer to 500 or something because there's 400 years of slavery, right? Then there's generations that lead into it. So you've got this 400, 500 year span of time, 400 years of slavery, this hardship upon God's people. Now, a lot of things happen in between here and there, right? And there's a few things. The people clearly are not super obedient to God, and that's a piece of the puzzle, But there's also this moving in at 75 people who really are a small group of people at 75, right? What happens when they leave is they're about 1.5 million people and they leave super wealthy, right? In the middle of that, they're enslaved for a long time. Well, they're slaves in Egypt. They have no money. They have no rights. They have no ability to care for themselves, but they're growing and multiplying. But God is using that. And by the time they leave, Egypt pays them to leave. They leave a wealthy nation, about a million and a half, maybe more people, right? So God is fulfilling his promises through these people, but it's really hard to see if you're in the moment, right? Does that sound like our life? Like God is doing something. It's just not always super visible. And if we're the people of God in slavery back here, we would rightfully want to ask the question like, hey, I don't see what God is doing. Why is God doing it this way? Now, there may be an answer to that, but in the midst of it, you can't see it, right? Fast forward our lives today, things seem to be going a certain direction. We're like, okay, why this direction? And we may not be able to see it right now, but God is still faithful, 
God is still doing what God has promised to do. We're just in it and can't always see why, right? Verse 23, so when he, meaning Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So Moses is raised an Egyptian, right around 40. He decides he wants to go visit the Jewish folks that are there. It says, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down an Egyptian. Verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Listen to that last line. Can you see what Stephen is preaching right here? He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Consider that in Jerusalem to the Jewish religious leadership and and how that might be a message about Jesus, right? Verse 26, and on the following day, Moses appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father of two sons. So Moses is rejected by those he desired to save. Again, sound familiar? Verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, so another 40-year block of time, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame, in a fire, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. And there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Notice this repetition of the fathers. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. Right? This is before there's a law, because God's going to give that law to Moses. This is before Moses is a godly man. He doesn't even follow God at this point. God reveals himself, right? We see this pattern of God sovereignly intervening in people's life in order to keep, what we would just say, like the gospel, to keep, to keep faith present in the world, right? To keep a trueness about God present in the world. Because for the most part, God's people at this point who are enslaved are not faithfully worshiping God. So God is again kind of rebooting, getting the people back. The people are crying out. they're, They're turning to God. That's good. God is moving. He's raising up a leader named Moses, but he first has to turn Moses into following God. God is preserving an undeserving people once again, Right? God is intervening and, and, and keeping his side of the covenant, right? even when people are not necessarily very faithful to their end of it. So we see this kind of recurring theme we see from Abraham to Moses. So back to Stephen's preaching, verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This Moses, uh, excuse me, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel, angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, in the wilderness, for 40 years, another 40-year block of time. Right? Stephen breaks out kind of 400 years of history back here, and then these three 40-year blocks of time that explains kind of the move of God's deliverance for them. But he notes by tying the stories together that ancient Israel rejected Moses like current Israel in his day rejected Jesus. Right? That Moses went into Egypt and performed signs and wonders, 
but they still didn't believe him. Just like Jesus in his day performed signs and wonders, but they didn't believe him, right? Both obviously still rejected by the people. Verse 37, it says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Stephen reminds them of the words of Moses that pointed forward to Jesus. You see, the gospel message is consistent from the very beginning of Scripture as God proclaims it first in Genesis 3 and then kind of develops that covenant community starting in Genesis 12 over and over again, Exodus 3, as Moses enters. So you've got, you've got God proclaiming, you've got God turning Abraham into a follower. You see Moses here. We see the deliverance from Egypt, from slavery into the wilderness, into their, like, over and over God is doing this. Because God created you and I and loves us. That's the whole point. But the design for humanity is that we are obedient to God, that we live out lives that follow our Creator. Right? Sin, what all of us have done, is really saying, God, I, you created us, but I'm going to make my choices now. Right? I know you made, but I'm going to make new decisions. I know you created me and know how... I'm supposed to work, but I'm going to say I'm smarter than you, and I'm going to go my own direction. That's sin. That's a rejection of our Creator. That's rebellion from God. That's us saying, listen, I don't need you. I'm going to do it my way. And that's something we can all resonate with. We all do that. I don't mean have done it. I mean we do that. In Christ, empowered by the Spirit, knowing the cost of sin and knowing the rebellion from God, we still do it. And this is the story of humanity, that God loves us, but we reject Him. And so in our sinful state, there's nothing we can do to, to get back to God. In fact, we're running the other direction. And so God, pursuing us, brings Jesus. Just as God brought Abraham, and God brought Moses, and God ends up bringing the prophets, and the priests, and the kings, and the different people that were represented throughout time, pursuing this relationship with people sovereignly reconciling back to himself. And he does so in Jesus. And all of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of it, just as Jesus said, that all the law and the prophets and Psalms, they they speak of me. And so Jesus enters into human history, becomes flesh on our part. God become flesh. He lives the life you and I are called to live, but choose not to. He dies a brutal death in our place, taking the wrath of God from all who believe and putting it on himself, that if you are in Christ, you are forgiven and the wrath of God has been, has been paid for you. He dies death to cover our sin. He raises from the grave to give us new life. Right? He empowers us with his spirit and he calls us to join him on, in, in the ministry that he's called the church to of being his witness to the world. See, all the way back as God covenants with Israel, he tells them the same thing. I will do this for you, and you'll be my witnesses to the world around you. He says it like this, though. He says, if you are obedient to me, I'll make you a nation of priests, a nation of people that go between God and others and go to God on behalf of others. I will make you a kingdom of priests. See, for us, as the book of Acts started, you'll be my witnesses. You're the church. You'll be my witnesses in the world. You'll represent Christ to others. Galatians 4, we'll put this up, says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, 
than an heir through God. See, there's two things here that we often miss in the gospel. Like the deliverance from Egypt, they were delivered from their slavery, right? They were delivered from the things that enslaved them. See, in Christ, we're delivered from the sin that enslaves us. We're not just forgiven, but we're delivered from it. But there's a part two there, that we also become sons and daughters of God. See, we're not born children of God. In fact, we're born opponents of God, enemies of God, deserving of God's wrath, separate from God because of our sin, because of our rebellion and rejection of God. But through Christ, we become sons and daughters of God. We're adopted into the family See, we're not just forgiven and called to something new, but we're brought into a family. Not just a local family like the local church, though that's true and critical. But we're brought into the family of God. That we're made sons and daughters of God. We're given a new identity. Just like the people of Israel were given that. And so God repeatedly reminds them of this Exodus story. Not just delivered from sin, but adopted We receive a new father. Remember the emphasis of our fathers, our fathers. Our fathers did this wrong, they did this wrong. Remember when our fathers rejected this guy, and then these fathers rejected this guy? Remember our fathers, but God is our new father. That we are adopted into a new family with God as our father who will never reject us. And so we see this contrast in this story. Verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. It's an interesting use of this. That word congregation right there is, is ecclesia, the word for church, the gathering, the church. And he calls them, the people in the wilderness that are following God, he calls them, kind of ties them to, if you will, the church, modern day church, right? This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers, Moses at Mount Sinai, right? He received living oracles to give us. The living oracles Stephen is talking about, he gave the word of God to Moses to give to the people, right? What you and I would call the Old Testament begins with the writings of Moses, that God on Mount Sinai gave the living word to Moses, the word of God that will never fade, that will always be the inspired word of God, that will always be the inerrant word of God, that will always be the infallible word of God for all of our faith, for all of our practice, for all of our salvation. And it begins with a man named Moses, So again, this plot point in the story, if you will, God is again intervening into humanity for their good, for their salvation, right? How do you think the people will respond to that? We would hope really well. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. How do they respond? They give their worship to another. As they're seeing, literally, I want you to just imagine Mount Sinai for a minute. Moses goes up on the mountain and this cloud, this, this kind of veil of a cloud descends over the top of Mount Sinai and no one's allowed to go up. If you go past the, the beginning of the mountain, you die. Literally, an animal would die. Like God said, don't do it. So they keep all the people back. So you can see this visible presence of God and Moses has gone up into the presence, has sent it on him. And the last time he did this, he gave them the law. Right? The last time he, he began to tell them what God is saying. And so he goes up, and while he's up there, the people get bored and, and tired of waiting and impatient. And they're like, we don't know what happened to Moses. Let's make an idol. Let's worship an idol. It says they remember Egypt. 
which they do all through the wilderness. They say when they get to their first problem, what, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die? Like we had it so good in Egypt. No, 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 if you remember the story, they were praying to be delivered because they were enslaved in Egypt, being beaten and abused in Egypt, and they wanted out. But then they get out here, and because God isn't doing things their way, we want to go back. Just think about your faith right now. Whatever brought you to being a follower of Jesus, whatever it was behind you, whatever it was in your past that you said, I don't want this, and I want Jesus. And then consider how we, at times, say, you know what? I want to go back to this. And we glorify the world we live in as if that is better somehow. And it's no more ridiculous than saying, I want to go back to Egypt. Because the things that we were enslaved to before and the things that were our problems, all that is still there. Maybe we've forgotten how bad, forgotten how bad, but it's all still there. But this is human nature. They reject God's law and salvation by turning to idolatry. Verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven as written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile in Babylon. Now, interesting note, Stephen ties this story of the wilderness to something written about a thousand years later by the, by the prophet Amos, when they're already a nation, but they're doing the same things. And God says, if you don't stop, I'm going to have another country come in and conquer you and displace you, which if you know the story happens, right? Babylon comes in and conquers them and enslaves them. And he ties these two points in history. This part of Amos right here talking about the people of God. And this part with Moses right here talking about the people of God and just pointing out like, look, same thing here, same thing here. The implication is same thing now, yes. right? Now here in Jerusalem, after Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected from the grave and was among us for 40 days proving he was alive, you're still the same people. He says, but God turned away and gave them over, right? Another part of the story is judgment. That you can't go on and live your own way and continually reject God and think it's okay. That there is a penalty for those decisions. Every decision has a consequence, positive or negative, right? That it has an outcome. And to continually reject God is to bring on his judgment on you, on me. Right? Whether that be in the temporary, like we're ignoring God over here, we're sinning over here, but we're in Christ, but we're kind of ignoring it and there's... there's the cause of our choices, or it's we reject God and ultimately will be judged eternally. Verse 44. He says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, the tabernacle, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make according to the pattern that he had seen. Now remember, their issues are violating the law and violating the temple, right? All of this history, not only have the people violated the law, but it was pre-law for some of it, and for sure pre-temple. Now we're just getting to the tabernacle, but God has done all of this. His, his interacting with humanity is not required to be in a temple. That's kind of his point, right? Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nation that God drove out before our fathers. Noting again that God moved out the nations, the people just followed in, right? So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked him 
to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, David's son, who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So they moved from tabernacle, basically a mobile church tent in the wilderness, into the land. And then David wants to build a house for God. At one point he looks at himself and he goes, I live in a palace and God's in a tent. Let's fix that. And God says, no, I'm good, first of all, and no, but your son can do that, right? There's a whole story there, but then Solomon does it. But it, it's this, it's when, the ta- when the temple is all built, and they've got this amazing temple. They have this amazing place of worship where the people are going to go and, and worship God, and, and all of this is, everything's going to be right in the world. But as they're doing this, and Solomon is praying and consecrating the temple, and God is getting ready to fill it with his presence, God says these words to Solomon. He says, hey, this is great. I'm coming. I'm going to fill it with my presence. But when the people go astray, right? He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Right? Second Chronicles 7.14. We hear that a lot. But it has to do with the temple, and as God is getting ready to fill the temple with his presence, he's giving them the way to return when they mess it up. Not if, when. Because our hearts are prone to wander, right? As we sing in one of the great hymns. Hearts are prone to wander. Verse 51, you stiff-necked Stephen. Stephen goes hard in the paint. Ready? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. But you received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. You stiff-necked people, right? You refuse to turn and look at God. And the imagery is, is just so powerful. It's that people are just resistant to God and they're turned away and they're, they're stiff-necked in their rejection of God. That they are just turned from God, refusing to hear. Which of the prophets did your father not persecute? He says, we have a history of our people killing the very messengers of God because they didn't like what they had to say. And now, after killing the ones that proclaimed Jesus to come, now we, you, he says, murdered Jesus. Like, it, it, this is not a friendly message. This is a very fixated, focused gospel message. You killed Jesus. And it's right and it's important that they killed Jesus, the Son of God. Peter's been saying that over and over again. This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Like, God trumped you here, but you killed Jesus. He says that a couple times. Stephen picks up that theme. See, here's the thing. Remember, we go back and all of the Old Testament has these two massive stories. One is the big picture story of God promising to bring a Redeemer, whom we know as Jesus, who enters into human history, fulfilling all the promises of God, and that through him we might have salvation with God, right? That's the big picture story. The the Old Testament ends with a cliffhanger of a promise of 400 years of silence, and that the one who breaks the silence will be the prophet that points to the Redeemer, the Messiah. 
we get John the Baptist pointing to Jesus as the New Testament opens. The cliffhanger of the Old Testament is, where's the one we're waiting for? But there's a second story. There's this people of God called Israel that have been all over the map. They have their high points and they have lots of low points. So bad that God has fulfilled his promises in them and then taken them back and then given them back and then taken them back again. He gave them the land, he promised them, and then he took it back. He he actually didn't take it back. He conquered them and sent them out of it. And then they get to come back, and now they're second-class citizens in their own land. And to finish up that piece of the conditional covenant. See, the unconditional covenant is fulfilled in Jesus because man can't do that. God had to bring a Savior. But the conditional piece, you'll be my people if you'll follow me, and I'll use you, I'll make you priests to the world ends when they kill Jesus. Rightfully ends when they kill the Son of God. Now we all know it was Roman hands, but it was a Jewish court that said so, and we all know that it's our sins that nailed him to a cross. We're not trying to single out a people group, but it's the end of an era for them. And now all who are in Christ get to become the spiritual nation of those who follow God, the spiritual Israel, the church, the gathered people of God. That anyone, and at this point, it's roughly 10,000 Jews who are following Jesus. They're not eliminated. They just have to move into a new people, the church, the people of God. So Stephen paints this historic survey of the Old Testament style gospel where he says, listen, repeatedly God has intervened. God has been good. God has called us to be obedient and our fathers denied it. God would send a messenger, they'd kill him. God would send another messenger, they'd persecute him. God finally sent his own son, and you murdered him on a cross. But the gospel is that if anyone repents and turns to Jesus, even those who killed him get to come to faith. Not only get to come to faith, not only be forgiven, but again, adopted. Not just delivered, adopted. And with adoption, you get to inherit the benefits of being in that family, right? You get to enjoy all the privileges of being in that family. And one of those privileges is being indwelled by the spirit of God, right? As the spirit pours out on the church, they begin to be empowered to live for Jesus, to live in a community of people and be a witness for Jesus. And we see this repeatedly happen. They become more about the the community than about themselves. And when they walk out the doors, they're a witness for Jesus and people are coming to faith left and right. All the way up to where the church gets so big that it's got this internal rift based around language and ethnicity. And they solve that by raising up some leaders. And as soon as they do that, one of those leaders is tested. And he turns out this gospel, not by his own strength or education, but by the Spirit of God, he preaches this gospel that started thousands of years before him with the first promise made by God. And the people that God repeatedly brought in to bring us to this point and then land inside of Jesus. And then Stephen lays it out there like, listen, you're living the history of our people. It's time to change. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. 
And when they had cast him out of the city, they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. He'll become important later. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's accus- the accusations against Stephen are the accusations they made against Jesus. Stephen preaches from basically the entire Old Testament in summary, all about Jesus. He then tells them, you're just one in a list of people who have rejected God and ultimately rejected Jesus. And so what do they do? They give him the same outcome as Jesus and they kill him. But in the middle of this, Jesus looks, uh, uh, Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus. He's literally getting a standing ovation from Jesus. Jesus is seen from here on forward in Scripture, never standing again but sitting. But Stephen gets a standing O. As he preaches Jesus in the face of death. And the people reject him as they have rejected Jesus. And then he imitates his Savior saying this. Jesus, don't hold their sins against them. Because what I want to see is I want to see them in you. See, that's the message of the gospel. That in Christ, we can be transformed no matter who we are. He says, do not hold this sin against them. He gives his life for Jesus. So today, it's a warning really for all who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Right, for all who profess faith, we should, we should see a warning that our tendency, at least over time, is to slip back into these things that we see thousands of years of history of people rejecting God and the ones who proclaim the words of God. It's easy to get up here and tell you, Jesus wants you to live a happy life and be rich and be healthy and get anything you want, like Jesus the genie in the lamp, rub the lamp, get what you want. Right? For sure, attendance would be up. But that's not true. And people perish because of that message. See, we can be children of our fathers who have rejected Jesus, or we can be children of the Father who has made us a family through his Son. See, we get to be a new covenant people, as Jesus says, which we'll talk about in a minute over communion. The condition is follow me, and I will walk with you. Right? The unconditional is through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will fill you with my spirit and use you to the ends of the earth. So warnings from Stephen to the church. God has intervened in humanity over and over again, providing salvation, though none deserve it. God has given his word to lead and guide us who follow him. Our inclination is to follow ourselves and worship idols. Judgment is waiting for those who repeatedly reject Jesus. So in the words of the apostle through, in the book of Hebrews, we'll put this up. He says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's what he's saying. That none of you become that stiff-necked person because of the deceitfulness of sin that hardens your heart, and in this case, stiffens your neck. Right? He says, exhort each other every day. Another when we gather together, exhort one another onto the truth. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as long as we remain in the faith. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
Every time you gather, you hear more about God's expectation from you and more about God's promise of blessing to you if you're faithful. You can leave here with your heart softened or your heart hardened, but the truth of God does not go out neutrally. So what do we do this? What is a takeaway for you today? What is something you heard that maybe you want to you apply to your life over the next week? For me, I'm, I'm challenged not to ignore sin in my life, and I'm challenged to exhort others also. Don't allow the little things, thinking they're little, even when they're rejections of God. Don't let them harden the heart or stiffen the neck. Don't let them push us away. For those of you that have been walking with Jesus for a while, keep an eye on your own life while leading others. Paul says that, well, after proclaiming the gospel, that you be disqualified, right? Keep an eye on your life. New believers, again, same thing. Pay close attention to the small sins that creep in. For those of you that are not yet believers, the gospel requires rejecting this world and turning to Jesus. You don't get to add Jesus to what's existing in your life, but you turn to Jesus away from everything else. Parents, do you teach and warn your kids about the deceptive nature of sin. Not that just this, hey, you tell this lie and it's wrong, but when you do this, you're rejecting God. Do you teach them what sin is rather than just behavior? Turn, you got three, four minutes, turn to one another, try if they're sitting around people, try not to leave anybody out. What is one takeaway you want to apply to your life this week?